guess he says it's my turn. Well, good morning. I'm glad to see so many of you here this morning. Um, it's been a, it was an interesting trip coming down, you know, with all the snow that was out there, but it was not too bad. You know, as he was making the announcement today, talking about the deer and stuff. I had the opportunity to be up in Canyon City, Colorado, for about six months and worked with them up there for a while. And one of the neat things in uh, the Canyon City, Colorado, is that the deer come into the city and you're not allowed to kill them. So they're all over the place. You know, and as I had been there a couple months, we were starting to find out that I was not going to be able to stay just because we couldn't afford a house and couldn't find some place to live where I could bring Helen. And one day I was just having a real down day because of some of that. And uh, a friend of mine had gone out, and we had gone on the, uh, on the, uh, right down the Arkansas River and gone and ride our, rode our bikes and came back. And as we came back, we went into the office, and we talked a little bit, and then as he was walking out, he goes, David, come out here. And I walked out there, and there is a huge big old buck. You know, I don't know how to count the, the things, but he had a bunch of them. I mean, it was huge. I'll show you pictures. I've got them on my computer. But he stayed outside for six and a half hours on the lawn right outside my, my office wall. I don't know. <laughs> God does some miraculous things. And then the, the last Sunday that I was going to be preaching for him, um, I'd finished preaching and we were getting ready to leave the church and one of the ladies in the church came out and she said, uh, came running back in and she said, David, your friend's outside again. Because I had posted pictures and told them that we had, had a guest that was coming to see us. And so I go outside, and here's not only this big buck, but two little or smaller bucks. And um, one of the other guys in the church came over and said, yeah, they came just about the time we were ready to start church. And he said the big one walked up to the door that everybody was going in and out and looked in, and then the three of them went and laid outside of the auditorium right up against the wall to the auditorium. I said, well, what are you, you guys getting so excited about? They came to hear God's word. So what we're here today is we're here to talk about God's word. This morning we got to talk about this Messiah that we have that did things to show everybody that he was indeed the one that was the anointed one. He was the one that was to come and be the one that was going to go to the cross. You know, and like I said this morning, there are a lot of people that claim that he never made that claim, you know, verbally, but if you go through and if you didn't get any of the notes, I've got some extra ones. But he was very specific in the actions that he took and the way that he talked, that he was there and he was present and he knew what his goal was, which was to get to the cross so that we can get to eternity. This morning what I'd like to do is one of those other fallacies that's being taught out there is that they can't understand why God would have let His Son, if He was indeed His Son, actually go to the cross. Couldn't God have done something else? But you know, if you go from the very beginning, even when Satan tempted Him in the garden, and the last one, He took Him and He put Him on the peak and He said, look at all of that out there. If you want it, all you have to do is ask for it. And Jesus says, that's not the way God has a plan. And so as we go into the foundation and we start to look at this cross that Jesus went on, 
You know, a lot of people are saying, oh, well, you know, God just uh, left Jesus and left him alone. And if you understand the things that surrounded the cross, the seven little things, and we're going to talk about them this morning, God's presence was there and in power. You know, so if you start with me, if you, uh, if you look at your sheet or to your Bible, if you go to Luke 23, 44, it says, And now about the sixth hour, which is noon, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. Matthew also tells us, Now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon the land until the, till the ninth hour. Amos, out of the Old Testament, says to us, I will come about, uh, about in that day, declared the Lord God, that I will make the sun go down at noon and make the earth dark in broad daylight. Isaiah tells us, For the stars of heaven and the constellations will not flash forth their light, and the sun will be dark when it rises, and the moon will not shed its light. Micah tells us, Therefore it will be uh, night for you without vision, and darkness for you without divination. And the sun will go down upon the prophets, and the day will become dark all over them. So this was something that was prophesied from the very beginning. And that was one of the things that Jesus um, did in his walk, was that his goal was to accomplish everything that God prophesied, so that they wouldn't have any question this, that who he was. But here, as they put his son on the cross, you know, a lot of people said that he, God deserted Jesus on the cross, but you can see in this very first thing, he put darkness at noon. And not only was it darkness, how many of you have been to the caverns down, you know, I think there's some caverns close here. Have you gotten down into those real dark caverns where you can't see the, your hand in front of your face? That's what it was like for three hours. Can you imagine what those people must have been thinking of that day? Probably one of the questions they were asking is, <laughs> is the sun ever going to come back? Is this the end? But God was taking care of things that needed to, to be shown that his power was still in charge. And he said he darkened it when Jesus went to the cross. We're going to come back to that in a few minutes because it's interesting some of the conclusions that come from that. The second thing is, is that the ripping of the curtain, the veil that was in the temple. In Luke it says in 23 and 45, because the sun was obscured and the veil of the temple was torn in two. Matthew says, and behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. I don't know about you, but it sounds like God was pretty angry at what they were doing to his son. He knew from the beginning of foundation that his son was going to go through this. I mean, he prophesied it through the entirety of the Old Testament. He gave us insights into what was going to happen when he was hung on the cross, but it still doesn't mean he liked it. And here you can see that that temple... You know, you went into the Holy of Holies. And only the priest could go in there. And only the priest could go in where God was supposed to be 
where the ark was. And he said that it was ripped, not from the bottom to the top, but from the top down. He just tore it down. Sounds like he was a little bit upset. And he said, I am no longer going to reside there. Jesus had foretold, and it was even foretold clear back in Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, that there was a new covenant coming and that God was going to come and live inside of each person. And that's what Jesus is on this cross for. And God says, that place that you used to come and worship me, that's not where I'm going to be anymore. I'm going to be where my son has brought the light and they have responded to it. So as we see this temple is gone, can you imagine? I mean, this was the place that they sanctioned off. And God said, no more. We come to the third one. We got a little bit of an uh, insight into it in Matthew where he says, and the rocks were split. But in Matthew 27, 51 to uh, 54, and it says, Behold, the veil of the temple was torn in, t- uh, in two from the top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. God caused an earthquake. How many of you have ever got to experience one of those? I've been in a small one out there in California one time. My, my one brother was in San Francisco when they had one. And I, it's a pretty scary thing. But here, God, it says that he split the rocks. I don't know if you, how many of you ever had that chance to go to Jerusalem and to see what that land is like? It's very, very rocky, mountainous. And he said that God was so angry with what was going on that he split the rocks in two. Now, I mean, you're in in pure darkness, and all of a sudden you hear that everything going beside you, and here all of a sudden you hear this rock go, I mean, how scary is that? (laughs) These people must have been very concerned about what was coming down. Are we going to get sunlight again? Are we going to really see, is this the destruction that Christ was talking, that God was talking all about, that there was a desolation of destruction that was coming? The next one, I think, probably had to really uh, disturb a lot of people, you know, and a lot of people say, oh, this could never happen. This was just something that they added later. But in, uh, as he gets into uh, 52, it says, the tombs were opened and many of the uh, bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep. And coming out of the, the tomb after the resurrection, they entered to the holy city and appeared to many. Now the centurion who were uh, with him kept uh, guard over Jesus. And when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, they became very frightened and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. 
You think Jesus, God was making the statement? And we have to understand these centurions. You know, these guys were wimps. <laughs> these guys were like Delta Force. They were like, you know, uh, Navy SEALs. These guys weren't afraid of anything. And it said they became very frightened when they saw what was happening. And they saw the power of God. And guess what? They came to the right conclusion, didn't they? They said, this was the Son of God. Because God showed his displeasure with what was going on. Even though he knew it was supposed to happen, he still wasn't excited about it. Because he knew what Jesus was accomplishing on this cross. If you go to, to Luke 24, 12, it says, But Jesus got up and ran, or I'm sorry, but Peter got up and ran to the tomb and stooped and looked in, and he saw the linen wrap, wrapping only. And he went away to his home and marveled at what had happened. And then John writes his rendition, and it says, And, and uh, stooped and looked in. He, John, saw the linen wrapping laying there, but he did, uh, did not go in. So Simon Peter came following him and entered the tomb and saw the linen uh, wrap lay there. And the fa face cloth which had been on his head was laying with the, uh, the linen wrappings, but rolled up in its place by itself. So the other disciples who had, had first come to the tomb then also entered, and they saw and believed. For uh, yet they did not understand the scriptures that he must rise again from the dead. See, you know, it's interesting because, like I said, you know, even with Jesus, Jesus proved who he was. Here, he made a statement to his disciples. The youngest of the group, John, was faster than Peter, and he got there first. But he said when Peter finally got there and he went in, that they saw the wrappings that were on Jesus. And we talked about it in class this morning, and when he called Lazarus out, Lazarus probably did one of these shuffle things to get out, but Jesus was nowhere in those. He was gone. The power of God, we're told later on in Scripture, that the hand of God reached down into that grave and pulled him up to heaven. We're told by the angel, the angel standing outside asked the women that were coming, said, what are you here for? He's no longer here. They even saw the, the cloth that was over his head was rolled up and put in place at the, at the right place. It wasn't just laying there. So we know God had the power to do that, and he never once abandoned his son. He was there through the whole thing. Through the through whole three days, you know, he was there and participated in what his son needed him to do. If you recall, on the, on the cross, you know, I've, I know that many of you have heard the seven sayings from the cross. But the last one is one of the most important because Jesus, it says, and he said, it is finished. Into thy hands I commit my spirit. You tell me God wasn't there? Even till the last breath, 
our God was fulfilling the plan that needed to happen so that we could continue to have a relationship with Him. He was paying our price with His Son, the sacrificial Lamb, the Passover Lamb, the one that yielded Himself to what God's will was in every way which included going to this cross. But the most important thing for those of us today is that the seventh thing that happened around the cross, and all of these were miracles that were going on, that God himself was performing, is that Jesus was raised from the, le- from the dead. In Luke 24, 45-47, then he opened the minds, uh, their minds to understand the scripture and said to them, Thus it is written that Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and the repentance uh, for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning in Jerusalem. In 1 Corinthians, Paul writes, For I I delivered to you of first importance what I also received from Christ, that Christ died for our sins according to Scripture that he was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the scripture, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the rest of the twelve. And in Acts 10, 39-41, we are witnesses of all these things. He did both in the land of Jerusalem, of the Jews and in Jerusalem, and they put him to death by hanging him on a cross. God raised him up on the third day and granted that he become uh, visible, not to all the people, but to the witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God, that is, to us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. See, this was a miracle that God, did you catch that? It says, and God made him visible again. That he was able to take that form of a man even they, after they had put him on the cross. He had given up his last breath, but God made him what he was before, that they could touch him. And we know that, they had, uh, that, that Thomas, the one we call the doubting Thomas, said, until I've been able to put my, hand, my fingers in there and then my hand on his side, I won't believe. But as soon as he saw Jesus, he knew. You know, when they go to the mountain, and as Jesus comes to him for the last time, if you go to Matthew 28 and 18, he, he says, and Jesus went to those men and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been granted unto me. And I tell you, to go and create disciples. And baptizing them into, there's a really unique little Jewish uh, writing that uh, estuanoma, actually it's Greek, I apologize, it's a Greek saying. Estuanoma actually means changing ownership from one person to another. You know, it's like him owning his cows, or somebody was saying that he was selling chickens over the week. When you go and you sell those chickens, you transfer your ownership from them to somebody else. And that's what this is saying. 
estuanoma, into the name of the Father, into the name of the Son, and into the name of the Holy Spirit. And he tells them, I want you to go into all of Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the world and share this good news. See, we have a God that planned for this. He planned for each one of you that are here, when you hear this word, that it gets to your heart and you understand He will never leave you. Jesus told His disciples, I will never not be there for you. God has taught that from the very beginning. He is never not here for us. You know, having some conversations, you know, it's interesting that if you don't believe God's in charge, it's hard to believe that He hasn't walked away and just kind of left us in this predicament we're in with this pandemic. But if you believe that God is still in control and that God is the one that makes things happen the way he needs them to happen, then you can see that there's a reason, and there's a reasoning God does things. We don't always understand his thoughts. We don't always understand his ways, is what we're told. But you can know that the end product is still going to be there. And that's eternal life. That's the hope that we have in this God that was there for Jesus, and that's why Jesus said, into your hands I commit my spirit. He trusted God implicitly to finish the rest of the task that he had been asked to do. The rest of this story is really kind of interesting because if you get to, um, to understand what occurred, um, I've got a, a quote that's, I don't know if, how many of you have read too many of, uh, of Kaufman's commentaries, but he makes a note and he says, this manifestation of God's power should cause the soul to tremble. Only the, the true God and the creator of the universe could step forth and lay his hands upon the established routine of natural creation and bring to pass such darkness, such that which enveloped the world during three hours of the crucifixion. Why did God do it? It was a singular witness to the power of, God, of the Godhead of Jesus, who was the one crucified. It was a signal that even the most brutal and depraved could understand. The sneers and jibes of the mockers' face froze on their evil face on the onset of the supernatural events taking place. As three hours drug on, the awful fact must have occurred to many for all, of, for, uh, for all any of them knew, the sun would never rise again. You know, it's so, it's so powerful that we understand what God can do, the miracles that he can perform for us. And, you know, we, we have this concept that miracles have stopped. You know, it's a thing where God does not need to prove that who his word was, who his son was, and that's what the miracles of the first century were about. 
But God's still the great healer. He's still the great comforter. He's still the one that is in power and control. I had a very good friend of mine when I was in Mississippi, and I had had the opportunity for about a year after Yazoo City had lost their minister. He died, and so I went and talked to him, and they allowed me to come in and fill in until they could get, get their uh, selves together to be able to go and hire a preacher. And one of the guys there, probably one of their strongest members, got very, very sick. And I had actually finished going up there, and I was doing some other work in other places, and I got this call from his wife, and she said, David Ricky wants you to come see him. So I drove to the hospital, and as I got in, you know, they introduced me to the medical staff because, well, he's our preacher, you know, even though at that time I really wasn't. And so they took me in, and as they were walking me down the corridor, they said, you know, we'll be surprised within two days he's not gone. And it was so, so impressive when I got in there, I got to see him, and he was not fully conscious of everything, but he was enough that he understood I was there. And the power of the people from that church came, and we sat in one of the uh, visitor rooms and continued to pray. And even the doctor that was administering to him uh, when I was going to pray with Rick before I walked out of the room, asked if he could be in. Within a day, Ricky responded. Until this day, he's still preaching uh, and teaching in God's church. God works in marvelous ways. His wonders to perform. I know that some things have happened here, just a little bit that I've understood, but God is still here. He's still here for each one of us, and He wants our hearts to turn to Him and say, Yes, I give up. As Paul said, it is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. If this community can see that, they can feel that when they walk in the doors here, they can feel it as we go out and continue to share with people, then we know that God's here. The last two things that actually happen around a cross that I think are interesting, and actually there's a couple others that you could add to it, but Jesus was asked to do Two miracles. And he refused to do both of them because they weren't what God needed him to do. The first was, if you're really the Son of God, come down off of that cross. And the Pharisees said, if you do, then we'll believe. And Jesus said, I know better than that. I gave you all these miracles and you still didn't believe. I told you I was the Son of God, and you still didn't believe. What's going to make you believe any more after I've raised somebody from the dead after four days than if I come down off this cross? He said, that's not God's purpose right now. And he said, if I needed to, 
I could call ten legions of angels if I really wanted to walk down off this cross and you couldn't stop me. But he says that's not what God's plan was. That's not where God needed me to go. That's not what God needed me to do. From the beginning of time, before time, the foundations of this earth, he planned that Jesus would come and he would die on a cross for me and for you. If that doesn't get to your heart, if that doesn't tug on your heartstrings, then your heart needs to have a heart transplant. I'll preach that some ser- that sermon some other time for you about having a heart of stone and we need to transplant it because you know if you go into Old Testament scriptures there's a couple places it talks about that but we have a God that can do anything even in the garden Jesus as as he's being betrayed he comes up and he says who are you looking for and again if you go back to the Greek you know, they, they said, well, we're looking for Jesus the Nazarene. And he says, I am he. I am he. We sang that song this morning, the great I am. That's what he was here for. That's what God sent him for. That's what God continues. That's why as he's going from that upper room into the Garden of, uh, uh, of Gethsemane the last night, he stops and offers up John 17, the Lord's uh, Lord's Prayer. And he said, Father, glorify me again the way I was from the beginning. But I need you to take care of my... This is David's paraphrase, by the way. I need you to take care of my disciples, those 12 that I've chosen, those that are serving me and spreading your word. I need you to keep them from the devil, the evil one. And he says, by the way, those that they teach and they bring into the light and into your kingdom. I need you to protect them that they might be one with my disciples as my disciples are one with me as I am with you. That was his priestly prayer for our lives. Are you ready to yield enough and to become one with Christ? Because that's what this world needs to see. They're getting all kinds of mixed messages. They're getting all kinds of garbage out there but they're not getting the fact that we are God's. We are now in His possession, in the possession of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Are you there? Are you willing to to become part of this family here and let this community know that we're on fire for God? Because we believe that He's the God that sent His Son, that got angry when they put Him on a cross but he put him there for a reason that we could come and be his chosen people. If anybody needs uh, help this morning, anybody needs prayers, anybody needs to come and recommit themselves, anybody needs to um, add Christ in your life, you know, that's why he said that we need to go and create disciples. We need to love one another. That was the last thing that the disciple John said as they carried him out 
from among the people as they carried him out on, on his, the bed. He said, love one another. Are we there? We can help you. Please come as we stand and sing.